Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey, friends. Welcome back to the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me, M, <laughs> for this continuing study in the book of Exodus. How about we pick up where we left off to talk a bit more about those 600,000 men leaving Egypt that we read about at the end of the last episode, shall we? The week two podcast episode of She Reads Truth's Exodus study suggests in counting the total numbers of people, we probably also need to include a very conservative estimate of equal amounts of 600,000 women and 600,000 children to arrive at an approximate total of 2.4 million people on that exodus out of Egypt. Rachel mentioned in this episode that I linked in today's show notes that she googled the population of the state of Connecticut and discovered that there are 3.6 million people living there. In another comparison, she searched the population of Nashville and learned that city's population is 1.2 million. So in essence, a group of people nearly the population of the state of Connecticut were leaving Egypt in a hurry. Well, come on. Truthfully, given the amount of people making this exit, there was absolutely positively nothing fast about it. Every move would take a substantial amount of time. Can you even imagine the magnitude of this exodus or exit from Egypt, my OOB tears? Sometimes trying to get just seven people out the door of our home feels nearly impossible. My friends, we now have a front row seat to seeing how God's promises in the book of Genesis to Abraham of future fruitfulness and multiplication has now happened on an unimaginable level. Wow. Also interesting to note before we move on today is this. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are in chronological order and chronicle the 40 years of Moses' leadership. I don't know about all of you, but I often thought that the 40 years happens in the book of Exodus. But as we're seeing in our studies, the Exodus itself doesn't actually even occur until chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Exodus. We are only in the beginning phase of part one of their journey in the wilderness, the two-month trek to Mount Sinai. In future episodes of OOBT, we will see in chapter 19 and then all the way through the book of Leviticus, the Israelites are going to be camped at the foot of Mount Sinai for a time period of about 11 months. That sure is a lot of books to cover such a short amount of time. It is not until the book of Numbers when we will see the Israelites start wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. All of this to say, they are not actually wandering yet. Moses and the Israelites are just on that two-month trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So, if you are a visual learner like me, you may want to take a look at the show notes for Exodus 1-3 through for Moses' timeline to help you process what is actually happening in these four books of the Old Testament. It was so helpful to me. I hope it is for you, too. And don't worry, I'll be sure to link that in the show notes for today as well. So, with all that said, let's begin today's reading in chapter 13 of the book of Exodus in the New Living Translation. It begins, Dedication of the Firstborn Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born, of both humans and animals, belongs to me. So Moses said to the people, This is a day to remember forever, the day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. On this day in early spring, in the month of Abib, you have been set free. You must celebrate this event in this month each year after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He swore to your ancestors that he would give you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Then, on the seventh day, celebrate a feast to the Lord. Eat bread without yeast during those seven days. In fact, there must be no yeast bread or any yeast at all found within the borders of your land during this time. On the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visual sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. With a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of this festival at the appointed time each year. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise He swore to you and to your ancestors. When He gives you the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to Him. 
A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And in the future, your children will ask you, What does all this mean? Then you will tell them, With the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. This is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. Israel's Wilderness Detour When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the Promised Land. God said, If the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them on a route, a roundabout way through the wilderness, toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. The Israelites left Seketh and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. So, how about we start by discussing all that talk about dedicating or consecrating the firstborn? Truthfully, to me it kind of feels here like Moses resembles a father who reminds his child to look both ways before crossing the street or reminds his teenage driver to fasten his seatbelt first, over and over again. At the end of chapter 12, on into the beginning of chapter 13, we basically see Moses revisit the topic of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the dedication or consecration of the firstborn, before resuming the developing story of what happened next to Israel after leaving Egypt. Depending on the translation of the Bible you are studying from, chapter 13 could be described as either a dedication or a consecration of the firstborn. My studies revealed that the word dedicate, as used here, means to consider something as belonging to God. Kind of reminds me of the baby dedications at church. Consecration means to be set apart for God's service. Whether a dedication or a consecration, why does God ask the Israelites to do this? Either way, the practice detailed in chapter 13, verses 11 through 16, was to remind the people of their deliverance through God. Another reminder from one generation to the next that God had redeemed the firstborn sons and the animals of the Israelites on that Passover night in Egypt. Listen to this perspective from the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible about chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. What does it mean to buy back every firstborn son? During the night the Israelites escaped from Egypt, God spared the oldest son of every house marked with blood on the doorframe. Because God saved the lives of the firstborn, he had a rightful claim to them. But God commanded the Israelites to buy their sons back from him. This ritual served three main purposes. One, it was a reminder to the people of how God had spared their sons from death and freed them all from slavery. Two, it showed God's high respect for human life in contrast to the pagan gods who their worshipers believed demanded human sacrifice. And three, it looked forward to the day when Jesus Christ would buy us back by paying the price for our sin once and for all. Okay, continuing on, day 34 of the Bible recap has this to say about Exodus chapter 13. The Israelites finally got free from Egypt after 430 years, and pretty immediately God wants to make sure the whole experience sticks with them, that they don't forget what just happened. He knows humanity pretty well, and he knows how easy it is to forget the truth when faced with lies, so he makes a few helpful commands. Remember the celebration he told them to have to commemorate the Passover each year? He wants them to follow that with a seven-day feast called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, like the kind of bread they had to eat on the night of Passover. I don't know about you guys, but so far I'm really resonating with all of this. I'm glad I've been adopted by the God who ordains dinner parties and week-long feasts. In chapter 13, verse 9, God says, All of this shall be as a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. The Israelites took this quite literally. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you'd see people from certain sects of Judaism wearing a small black box tied to their forehead or strapped around their arms and hands. These little boxes have scriptures written on them. They're called phylacteries. This is one way they aim to remember the word of God. God also tells them to consecrate the firstborns as a reminder that their firstborns were spared when the firstborns of Egypt weren't. 
He wants him to remember what they'd been rescued from and celebrate his deliverance. This remembering and celebrating will help them keep God at the forefront of their minds as they live in their new homeland amidst the Canaanites who don't worship God. Then they'll also be passing these practices and stories on to their children. When things go well, it's easy to forget God. And when things go poorly, it's easy to doubt God. So he calls them to remember, to not forget his past faithfulness, and to not doubt him. Focusing on his heart and his character is the way we set our hearts right, no matter what has gotten them off track, good times or bad. Because of what they've seen God do through Moses, it's clear to them that he's been appointed by God as a mediator between them and God, to act as a voice of God to them. The way they respond to Moses indicates the way they're responding to God in their hearts. Moses is God's representative, but God is their primary leader, not Moses. And Moses recognizes this too. In 1311, he says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers, and shall give it to you. Moses is under no illusion that he's the one in charge here. He knows that God is the source of all his power and that God is giving the directives here. Moses is the leader, but all that means is he's just the first follower. That's what a good godly leader is. Also in chapter 13, it is interesting to note that the first place God led them via that good godly leader named Moses was a long way around. But he did it for their protection and for their good, to avoid the effects that a Philistine war might have on their hearts. God knew their brand new faith in him wasn't strong enough yet to face something like that. They would probably chicken out and want to return to Egypt before they ever really got started. Of course, as we would expect, God knew exactly what he was doing in leading them to the Red Sea as well. So I'm guessing that, like me, you often hear people say that God won't give you more than you can handle. Or maybe you've even said it yourself. Guilty as charged here. Oof. But it's important for us to recognize that that's often not true. Why, you may ask? Well, because God wants us to see that we can only handle the hard things in life with Him and His strength, God with us. That's an important distinction. We will also see in our studies of scriptures, though, that there are times, and this is one of them, when God recognizes something is too much for someone to handle at that moment, and He does detour them. God might also redirect us if He realizes something is going to be too much, just as He did here for the Israelites on their trek out of Egypt. So tender and beautiful. This is a touching reminder that God sees not only the circumstances we cannot even anticipate, but also fully knows the condition of our hearts. We, like the Israelites, must learn to trust His wisdom and ways in the detours and delays of life. Easy to say, but much, much harder to live, though. Am I right, my OOB tears? Consider this thought I came across. In what ways is God taking me away from something the long way, because I need the time and the distance? Otherwise, I'll return to that thing. Ouch. That truly does make the seeming detour of the Israelites have a much different feel, doesn't it? Oh, goodness. And did you catch that part about taking the bones of Joseph with them as they left Egypt? If you studied Genesis with us on OOBT, you'll be happy to know that Moses did not forget Joseph's bones as he requested at the end of the book of Genesis. We have to remember that hundreds of years have passed, so that is definitely a fulfillment of a long-standing promise made many years ago. I do wonder where they kept his bones in Egypt, and then just how they carried his bones through the desert wilderness all those years to come in Exodus. Interesting to consider, am I right? (laughs) Speaking of promises, as verse 19 says here, Joseph had said at the end of Genesis, God will certainly come help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. Oh goodness, God sure did come to help them, didn't he? I am still blown away every time I consider this statement Joseph made in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. Joseph had no doubts that God would keep his promise and one day bring the Israelites back to their homeland, to the promised land. Such an impressive faith, the epitome of the definition of faith, believing in what you can't see and placing full trust in the promises of God, our promise keeper. I love that. Okay, so before we wrap up in chapter 13, can we just talk about that cloud, my friends? Gosh, listen to this perspective from the Jesus Bible devotional titled The Light. As night fell, the darkness of the desert made travel virtually impossible. The movement of millions of people across a rugged terrain was not easy in the day, much less at night. Light was a practical necessity for survival in the wilderness. Without it, the people would be left to stumble in the darkness, face the constant fear of unforeseen attacks by their enemies, and struggle to accomplish the basic actions necessary for living in a harsh land. 
once again, God provided for his people in a unique way. Rather than asking the people to create light, he provided it for them in the form of the pillar of fire. Often a mark of judgment, here the fire of God was a means of his provision. Even more, the fire embodied the presence of God among his people. The Israelites simply looked out at night, saw the pillar of fire, and were reminded that God was their God, and they were his people. He had broken into the darkness of human history and chosen them to be his. Even in the wilderness, they were reminded that God had worked mighty deeds of deliverance on their behalf and was leading them to the land of promise. And in moving on, in the Lamb of God book by Nancy Guthrie, in the section titled Our Light, it begins, In Exodus 13, we catch up with the people of Israel after they have left Egypt and are headed home to the land of their ancestors. Everybody knows when you've been away a long time, and they'd been gone 400 years, that you want to take the shortest, most direct route to get home. So it would make sense that they would want to take the well-trodden way from the Delta through the coastal strip to Canaan. But that's not the way they went. God knew that these people, fresh out of slavery, were not ready militarily or spiritually to come against the armies of those living in the Promised Land and the numerous other challenges they would face there. They needed to be made stronger through testing and at the same time more dependent on God by experiencing His supply for all of their needs. So God charted their course through the wilderness, leading them with a miraculous light. The cloud of God's presence with them gave light and provided a covering in the hot desert. For these ex-slaves who were used to working long, hot days under the scorching sun in Egypt, it must have provided welcome relief. The God who had brought them out of bondage was evidently going to care for them, and care for them tenderly. But this indirect route was confusing. They were well on their way to freedom when God ordered them to turn around, go back, and camp between the desert and the sea. Oh goodness, friends, the presence of God is getting larger. Remember, we started with Moses in a burning bush. In all honesty, I would like to think that if God put a cloud always in front of me and a pillar of fire at night, that I would follow wherever he led. But we know the truth about all of our hearts, don't we? And we will see the truth about the Israelites and their grumbling and complaining to come. In the meantime, though, it is so beautiful to see how God was visibly manifesting his presence for them and that they were not alone. No decisions to make. They just followed the cloud and moved when it moved and stopped when it stopped. Imagine how many of our life decisions would be so much easier if we just had a pillar of cloud to follow by day and a pillar of fire to follow by night. Wow, that would be so amazing. However, the truth for each one of us is that we do have a cloud to follow, my friends. God's Word. The Bible. When we read it, we will discover so many things about God and His character and how to move and what directions to take and also learn so much more about the Holy Spirit living in each one of us as believers. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible has this to say about chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. God gave the Hebrews a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire so they would know day and night that God was with them on their journey to the promised land. What has God given us so that we can have the same assurance? The Bible. Something the Israelites did not have. He also has given us the Holy Spirit to remind us of what the Bible says and to guide us each day. Look to God's word for reassurance of His presence. As the Hebrews look to the pillars of cloud and fire, we can look to God's word day and night to know that He is with us, helping us on our journey. As you've probably already heard once or twice or maybe even 50 times by now from me, God used the burning bush in His conversation with Moses as a mic drop moment for the starting of this podcast. God absolutely does use his word, my OOB tears. Okay, as a point of reference here before we move on to chapter 14, we've seen the Israelites leave Egypt with the wealth of the Egyptians on their backs, and they are now on their trek to Mount Sinai. But we are about to see a seemingly broken Pharaoh demonstrate the full extent of the hardness of his heart. Exodus chapter 14 in the New Living Translation reads, Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to camp by Pi-Haroth near Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore and across from Baal-Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. The Egyptians pursue Israel. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. 
So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him six hundred of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel, who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces of Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pi-Haroth. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, Leave us alone. Let us be slaves of the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Escape through the Red Sea Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and the Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of cloud and fire, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day, and the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. At the beginning of chapter 14, we hear God give Moses a heads up as to what's going to happen at the Red Sea, and my oh my, what he is going to do there will be remembered for eternity. Isn't it also interesting to recognize that Moses is a man of obedience here? He doesn't even question putting approximately two million people in striking distance of Pharaoh with no clear path of escape. Talk about obedience. And once again, we see that hardened heart of Pharaoh. Oh, goodness, friends. In Exodus 12, we saw Pharaoh finally relented and let God's people leave Egypt. We don't know if he had thought that they were going for three days of worship and is just now realizing they're not coming back. Or possibly even he's just now fully recognizing the bankrupt economy of Egypt after the plagues, on top of losing their slave labor force. But either way, he decides to pursue them with vengeance. Their entire labor force just escaped, so he commands his army to come out in force. And not just his army, but the best of the best, plus all of his chariots. I'm really not sure how he planned to corral over two million people and herd them back to Egypt like cattle without resistance. But that's probably part of the hardened heart bit, right? guessing he was just so angry he was winging it at this point. We know God had other plans, but let's hold on to that thought for a minute till we get there, shall we? Then we read the Israelites look up and saw the Egyptians coming, and they cried out to Moses, and in questioning of God asked, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to let us die here? Oh, how quickly they forgot God's power and deliverance just a few days before. 
We may wonder right here how they could ever forget the years of slavery and the murder of their children during the time of Moses' childhood. How they could forget what God and Moses just did in the plagues, especially the Passover. How could they ignore the cloud of the Lord right in front of their eyes? Before we get too hard on them, though, let's consider how often do we go to this dramatic tone in times of struggle. In reality, though, we know from our reading that God told Moses what was going to happen, but they don't know yet. And I am certain they would have been terrified to see the Egyptians coming in force when they had no weapons, no training, had never had to defend themselves in this way before, especially given the elderly and children with them. Truthfully, I feel like we are seeing a very valid human response to this unfolding scene. And then you have to consider all the stuff that they have with them, too, the livestock and the belongings. It really is a mess with their back pressed up against the Red Sea. In regard to verse 14, commentaries differ on what tone this passage was delivered by God through Moses. But I know what mom tone I probably would be using just about now with the Israelites. Oof. The translation of be silent used here is be quiet. That sounds an awful lot like stop complaining and grumbling and watch, doesn't it? Another resource suggested the be silent wording here is the equivalent of telling a child who is spiraling out to be quiet and go take a time out. Regardless of his tone, this has to be the most intense scene of the Old Testament. We know what the Israelites are thinking, and we can imagine that the Egyptians and Pharaoh are very confident that this is a victory that's going to be theirs. But what was Moses thinking? Only Moses saw the cloud in this situation, and only Moses had the confidence that God would come through. It is probably safe to imagine that he was looking in every direction, but probably didn't look in the direction of the sea as a possible escape route up into this moment. But God. We must also remember God's promise to Moses about the situation earlier in chapter 14, that he would deliver them from the Egyptians. So whether or not he saw the solution, he knew God would be true to his promises, as he had been so many times already in his journey with God. How many times has God proven himself faithful in our own lives that we too can look back and trust that God will come through for us in whatever we face today? So the Israelites were distracted, looking at the army approaching them near the Red Sea, But Moses has kept his eye on the cloud, kept his eye on God. So, so good. The angel of God's army and the pillar of cloud move from in front of them to behind them to stand between the Egyptians and them as they begin to cross the Red Sea. He goes before you, he comes behind, and he is beside you. Love that reminder. It seems he also goes behind them and in between to block the view so they can focus on what God is commanding them to do through Moses. The cloud is providing light to the Israelites and darkness to the Egyptians. So lean into that unfolding scene at the edge of the Red Sea, back to Moses and the Israelites. Moses fully believed God's promise to deliver them through the sea, and he lifted his staff over the Red Sea in faith. At the same time, the Israelites found themselves trapped between Pharaoh's soldiers and the Red Sea, with no escape route in sight. Helpless, hopeless, afraid. If that wasn't enough, just imagine what it was like on those shores as Moses raised his arms to the skies as the winds picked up and swirled around them, as the Red Sea's waters tossed around as the Lord God blew in the strong east wind. Fear on so many levels had to strike their hearts at that moment. How could they begin to understand what they saw before them, just what God was doing? Can you envision this moment, my friends? The sound of the quickly approaching hoofbeats and chariot wheels coming up behind them, the wind, the sprays of water as the sea is parting right before their eyes. Taking those first tentative steps to discover it was actually dry ground they were stepping out on. The trek across, looking to your left and right, seeing walls of water pulled back on itself. Do you think they could see the sea creatures in those walls of water? Would you have chosen the outside or wanted to be tucked in the middle of the millions of people crossing? It is estimated to get two million people across the Red Sea in one night, that the width of the path would have had to be a half mile wide. It would have been terrifying. Guessing most people, like me, didn't want to be on the edges because it would have been a wall of water so high on either side. Mind-blowing. Then in verse 24 we read, But just before dawn the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud. The last time God looked down, as mentioned here, was in Genesis chapter 18, when he looked down on Sodom. Oh boy. That certainly didn't go very well for Sodom, did it? And it certainly is not going to go very well for the Egyptians, either. In verse 25, the Egyptians were heard shouting to one another, The Lord is fighting for the Israelites against us. Very soon afterwards, God returned the seas back on themselves and swallowed the Egyptians. Can you even imagine the sight of that? 
a relief of safety, but also trauma, witnessing so much death right in front of your eyes. Oh gosh. Oh, oh, be tears. Let's take a minute here to reflect on God's power, to part the sea, to dry the ground, to hold the waters back until his people had safely crossed, to confuse Pharaoh's army, to cause his chariots to swerve, to return the waters just in time to destroy all of Pharaoh's army. In thinking about all of these things, the meaning of Exodus 14, verse 14, becomes a bit clearer, doesn't it? They did nothing to save themselves in this scenario. The Lord God fought for them, and they only watched and calmly moved forward as instructed. With that thought in mind, I believe the greatest Red Sea lesson is without a doubt this one. When your back is against the Red Sea, you can trust God. The parting of the Red Sea was important for the Israelites because they were able to recognize God did this for them. God alone rescued them, very much so without their help. They were to be still and silent to watch what God was doing for them. Rescuer Before we move on to chapter 15 in today's episode, here's a few more valuable perspectives about this Red Sea crossing for us to consider. In First Fives, How Do I Get Through This Study, in a section called The Deepest Waters, it begins, Twelve years ago, I stood at the shoreline of the Red Sea and watched the sun dance across the gentle crystal waters. My mind replayed images from pictures of and movies about the children of Israel who encountered the same waters more than 3,000 years ago. Those images were so different. Deep darkness deep waters, cliffs on either side of the people. An army of soldiers advancing and Moses with his staff raised above the raging waters. From the time the Israelites left Egypt, God himself led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This visible expression of God's presence would have been a constant source of comfort. God was not only with them, but also guided them. Why then would he lead them to a place of entrapment? The sea before them, the mountains to the left and the right, and Pharaoh's massive army closing in behind them. God revealed to Moses his plan that he would destroy the Egyptians from ever threatening the Israelites again. But the Israelites still felt fearful, confused, and helpless. Isn't it curious that those are the same emotions we feel today when our comfort and peace are threatened? Moses spoke on behalf of the Lord to the people. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. How comforting those words must have been. The Lord will fight for you. But how confusing the next phrase. You only have to be silent. In other translations, the words be silent are translated be still, quiet, and calm. When my life is upside down and trouble is on every side, being calm, quiet, still, and silent is not my natural tendency. I want to do something, make a decision, and fix the problem. Exodus chapter 14 verse 19 tells us, that when the Israelites heard Pharaoh's chariots pursuing them, the angel of God and the pillar of the cloud, who had both been going before them, leading them, both moved and went behind them. This is another way the Lord protected his people. He had their back. He moved his position so that he could protect them from behind. He was their rear guard. The Lord was working on behalf of his children to accomplish their salvation. He had led them to a place of complete dependence in order to reveal his incomparable magnificence. Through all of the events of that fateful night, God revealed Himself. He revealed His power over nature, His power over mankind, and His sovereignty. But most of all, He revealed His compassion, love, and mercy toward His children. Prior to that day, the Israelites had known this God as Lord, but that day, He became their salvation. God has not changed. He does the same in our lives today. He leads us to places of complete dependence in order to reveal His mercy, grace, and love which leads us to salvation. It is often in the deepest waters that we learn to silence our souls before God, experience His mercy, learn His truths, and find the amazing treasures of faith in His miraculous saving power. And speaking of God's miraculous saving power, more than 1,200 years after the Red Sea miracle, God would fight again for His children, this time on a hill called Calvary. Jesus made a way for us across the great divide of sin and death as He died on the cross. Through his death and miraculous resurrection, he accomplished our salvation. In this world we shall have tribulation, John 16, 33, but this world is not home. In Romans 8, 31-32, Paul said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How much he loves us! 
how much he cares for us. Oh, that we would choose to quiet our souls before the Lord and realize that he still fights for us, his children. We may not see it in the moment, but God can make a way. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Exodus 14.14 Moving on, in the Lamb of God book by Nancy Guthrie, it reads, It was as if God had led them into a blind alley with walls on both sides, and they quickly discovered that they couldn't go backwards either. When they turned to look back over their shoulders, they saw a growing dust cloud drummed up by hooves of Egyptian horses pulling six hundred chosen chariots. Pharaoh was coming out against a trapped mass of ex-slaves with his most prestigious and imposing force. And as the world's most fearsome army thundered toward them, the Israelites were understandably afraid. They could see clearly the power and purposes of Pharaoh, but they had lost sight of the power and purposes of God. The Israelites were caught between an unconquerable army and an impassable sea. If it were true that God helps those who help themselves, then this is when we might expect Moses and some other quick-thinking heroes among the group to come up with some kind of plan for thwarting this attack, some trick play or surprising strategy. But the truth is that God helps those who cannot help themselves, and He does so when there is nothing they could do, no chance for escape. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, the Israelites cried out to Moses. They saw only two options, death or slavery. They did not see God. But then instructions came from the Lord to Moses, and the people waited expectantly to hear Moses pass along the strategy. Moses did not tell the Israelites to pull themselves together so that they could mount a strong defense. There was nothing they could do and nothing they needed to do. They were not handed a long list of things to do to accomplish their own salvation. They were not about to be turned into soldiers. They would simply be spectators. Someone else was going to do the fighting, and all they needed to do was stand firm in their confidence that God would fight this battle for them and watch him accomplish his saving work. This was not one of those miracles that happened in an instant. They were on the west side of the sea, and God exerted his authority over the wind, starting on the east side of the sea. All night the Israelites waited as the east wind submitted to God's authority, dividing the waters, creating a wall of water on each side, and dry ground in between. And while it was God doing the saving, their salvation did require a response of faith. They had to put their faith in what God had said. Their faith became evident when they took that first step into the Red Sea behind Moses. Now certainly this vast group of likely two million Israelites had varying amounts of faith. Some probably expected the walls of water to let loose on them with every step, while others likely walked through with a sense of confidence and wonder that the God who had just brought down ten supernatural plagues on Egypt would keep the waters of the Red Sea at bay until they were safely across. Yet when they got to the other side, both kinds of people were equally saved. The Hebrew expression Moses used in verse 13 for the salvation of the Lord is Yahweh Yeshua. So Moses said essentially, you will see Yeshua. And this makes sense to us because we know that the salvation of God is bound up in a person, the person given the name Yeshua, Jesus himself. When we hear the word Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord, and respond in faith, we are united to the greater Moses. And like the Israelites, we pass from death to life. Jesus described salvation in exactly these terms, saying in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. In opening up the Red Sea to make a way through death for his people, God was showing how he would miraculously make a way through death for all those who come to him by faith through his son, Jesus Christ. While Moses stretched out his hands over the sea to make a way for his people, Jesus stretched out his arms on a cross to make a way for us. While Moses plunged into the waters of the Red Sea and all those who followed him emerged on the other side unscathed, Christ plunged into the waters of death so that following him we might pass through death unscathed to resurrection life. While the waters of the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh and his armies when Moses stretched out his hand, Jesus brought destruction on the devil when he was nailed to the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The sea the people feared became the means of their deliverance from the Egyptians. Likewise, the physical death we fear becomes a means of our deliverance into the promised land of God's presence. We need not fear death. Our deliverer has raised his rod, and we can pass through on dry ground unscathed. When the day comes that you stand on that shore, or as you stand with those you love when they come to the end of this life, hear him say to you, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. 
Exodus chapter 15 begins, A Song of Deliverance. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters gushed over them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. You unleash your blazing fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight up like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword. My powerful hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. The peoples hear and tremble. Anguish grips those who live in Philistia. The leaders of Edom are terrified. The nobles of Moab tremble. All who live in Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. The power of your arm makes them lifeless as stone until your peoples pass by, O Lord, until the people you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, reserved for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers rushed into the sea, the Lord brought water crashing down on them. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced, and Miriam sang this song. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Bitter Water at Merah Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Merah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Merah, which means bitter. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. It is there that at Merah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of your Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent and sent unto the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Merah, the Israelites traveled out to the oasis of Elium, where they found twelve springs and seventy palm trees. They camp there beside the water. Oh gosh, oh obitiers, here we see the fear of the Egyptians was gone after the Israelites had witnessed the mighty power of God as he fought for them and brought them safely to the other side of the Red Sea. With their damp sandals now back on dry ground and hearts full of praise, thanksgiving, and gratitude, they sing the song of Moses we just read in chapter 15. Can you even imagine the sound of millions, yes millions, of voices joyfully lifting up their praises to God? so beautiful to consider. This song marks the end of Egypt's slavery and the beginning of their time as a nation of Israel. They are finally free. As verse 20 read, Sing to the Lord for his triumph gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider in the sea. As they celebrated that rescue, their rescuer, even after the horrendous death of the Egyptians that they had just witnessed, they celebrated the fact that their time in Egypt was done and that Pharaoh and his army were never coming for them again. There was something new God had in store for them, new beginnings. Remember back in the reminder of the celebrations of the dedication of the firstborn in Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that God labeled that a new month, a new start for them, a line drawn in the Egyptian sand, so to speak. Oh gosh, friends, sometimes I have to humor myself. A girl's got to do what a girl's got to do when she spends hours talking to a wall, am I right? A line drawn in the Egyptian sand. You're welcome for that one. (laughs) Okay, getting back on track. We see the community of Israelites worship God with a song of praise. 
that is, until the next problem arose. Not long after their worship service ended, they found themselves again journeying through the wilderness and soon found the dry ground on the other side of the Red Sea to be very dry indeed. How quickly they forgot God's provision and began to grumble. The desert was hot, water was scarce, and the water they found was bitter. At the Red Sea they had too much water blocking their way, and at Merah they lacked drinking water. What that means is that today we have seen in these readings God perform miracles for the Israelites when there was too much water to get through, and then again when there was not enough water to drink. Living water for sure. Actually, that serves as a teaser for what's to come in the next episode of OOBT, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? <laughs> in the meantime, how about we listen into a couple of resources I found with some insightful thoughts about what we see happening here. In First Five's Exodus study, in a devotional titled After the Miracle, it begins, The miracle of the Red Sea was a distant memory as the Israelites hiked from the sea's eastern shore to the desert of Shur. The three-day journey left them hot, tired, and thirsty. As we learned in Exodus 13, God took them on a longer route from Egypt to protect them from war. Now, on the other side of the Red Sea, with the Egyptians defeated, they faced the desert. Often after a miraculous experience, we encounter a time of testing. Moses had proven his faithfulness to God. The Israelites had proven they would follow Moses. Now God wanted the Israelites to trust and obey him. The desert of Shur was the perfect place for a testing of allegiance. Three days without water must have been almost unbearable. Can you imagine the joy they must have felt as they reached the oasis at Merah? Their joy quickly turned to grumbling as they discovered the water was too bitter to drink. Moses asked the Lord for help. After throwing a piece of wood into the water, the undrinkable became drinkable. After the refreshing came the testing. God issued a decree. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Exodus 15, verse 26. Scripture doesn't tell us of a unanimous agreement by the people to trust and obey God, but we can know from God's response that their hearts collectively said yes. Moses led the people to Elam, where God sheltered them from the heat with palm trees and quenched their thirst with fresh, not bitter, water from twelve springs. At the end of their journey, God demonstrated His faithfulness to the Israelites' willingness to obey. Although no one wants to spend time in a dry, parched land of a desert, such an experience gives us the opportunity to prove and refine our faith. You may be in the sandy place of a financial desert or a barren relationship that is leaving you parched. Are you in an uninhabited place waiting for a prodigal child to return home or dry up emotionally? God demonstrates His faithfulness in the desert just as He does on the mountaintop. He is more than worthy of our commitment. He will more than satisfy your thirst with His living water and be a constant, trustworthy companion. Continuing on in the Lamb of God book by Nancy Guthrie, it reads, The salvation of God put a song in Israel's heart, but it was quickly crowded out by discontent. Israel's singing and celebration soon turned into sourness and complaining. Imagine traveling with two million people who are already grumbling and complaining when you've barely started the journey. I need a drink. I want something to eat. When are we going to get there? That was Moses' plight. It was three days into the wilderness when the people of Israel began to get really thirsty, and there was no water. Now we might expect that people who had seen the water of the Nile turn into blood, and the waters of the Red Sea part, would rest in knowing that providing water was not an insurmountable problem for their God. Surely the one who had brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea would also provide for them in the wilderness. Here was lesson number one in daily provision in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 15 verse 27, Then they came to Ilim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. This was a place of abundance, one spring for each of the twelve tribes, and obviously enough water to nourish seventy palm trees. Perhaps they should have gotten the message that their God intended to provide for them in every way. But as we will see, gratitude is not going to be their strong suit. Instead, the Israelites proved to be world-class whiners. In moving on, the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible for chapter 15 verses 23 and 27 reads, The water in the oasis at Merah is contrasted with the springs in the oasis of Ilium. Merah stands for the unbelieving, grumbling attitude of the people who would not trust God. Elam stands for God's bountiful provision. How easy it is to grumble and complain too quickly, only to be embarrassed by God's help. We must be patient for God's kindness and help. Don't let your negative attitude erode your trust in God. 
And before we wrap up our time together today, let's lean in a bit closer to this from verse 24. The waters of Merah could not satisfy their thirst, and they began to long for plentiful water from the cisterns of Egypt. What shall we drink, they grumbled to Moses. Oh my. Consider this thought from Charles Spurgeon. What a question. They were at the Red Sea, and God cleft the intervening gulf in twain. Through the depths thereof they marched dry-shod. There is Merah's water. Shall it be more difficult for the Lord to purify than to divide? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, friends, let's not forget that nothing, absolutely nothing, is too hard for our God. This is another one of those moments that I think we get an insight into our human hearts. They had a visible presence of God both day and night, and yet it was so easy to grumble and complain, and to look at the struggle, and to look at the lack, the lack of food, the lack of drink. Our hearts are bent towards seeing what's in front of us, for sure. But here we have an example of how what they were seeing in front of them was God, and still they struggled to believe. Here we see them coming off the ten plagues, and the Red Sea, and the presence of God in a visual form, and still they are struggling to believe. Oh, friends, faith is definitely not for the faint of heart, but more on that to come in our next study together. Goodness. As we are closing out our time together today, join with me in prayer. In Exodus chapter 15, Moses sings a beautiful song commemorating God's deliverance. Let's read these verses aloud as our prayer and an act of worship to our promise-keeping God. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, friends, before we end this episode, can I ask a favor? If you've been listening to the show now for any amount of time at all, I just want to remind you that I really appreciate ratings, reviews, and you subscribing to the show. It really does help others to find us to listen and study along with us. I truly am so glad you were all here with me today. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.